Yes. Good afternoon, morning or evening, wherever, whenever we find you today, you're listening to the third theological symposium of the theological theologians symposium, sorry, of the theologians symposium series on doth protest too much, a podcast on Protestant historical theology, or I, you could think of it as a podcast on Protestant history and Protestant theology. <laughs> um, so Charlie, James, and I, Andrew, are back um, for number three. And now just to kind of recap what we've done so far, um, uh, well, this series is a, by the end of this series, we should have just one more episode. We will, each one of us, James, Charlie, and myself, we would have listed, we, have gone, we, would, have, we would have gone through our top five favorite theologians. And um, so far, James has gone through three of them. He's given us three, and his three were Martin Luther, Bo Geertz, and Michael Horton. Uh, Charlie has given two so far in the series. That'd be James Veltz and Norman Nagel. And I have done Martin Luther. Uh, that's James and I both did Martin Luther in the same episode. And then also St. Augustine and St. Athanasius of Alexandria. So um, on to our show today. We are each going to give you one today for our listeners. And uh, Charlie and James, welcome back. How y'all doing? I know we kind of yeah, talked pre-show, but it's good to have you back. And um, I'm good. What's up, Charlie? I said I'm just doing well. Um, just doing well. Um, yeah, I mean, all three of us are pastors and pastoral ministry days. Some look, some look different than others. And so uh, I'm grateful for both of y'all to uh, make the time to do this. So um um, and I'm, I think I, I know our listeners appreciate it too. So, um, so I, I guess the choice was in our pre-show discussion that I was going to go first because James did first last time or the first time Charlie did first, second time. So, um, my number, this would be my number four. I'm not ranking them though, but this is the fourth one on my list is Paul Althaus. Um, Paul Althaus. And I actually, I did notes for this uh, for our listeners. The first three, I didn't really do notes. I kind of just talked about them and some things off from the top of my head. And uh, but there's just a lot about Althaus. I'm I'm going to try not to dominate this episode. So um, Althaus, uh, at least in English literature, English language literature about him is has some notoriety around his name uh, because he is kind of known as the Nazi theologian. Um, however. Uh, that we'll, we'll get into this. So um, Ryan Tafalowski, who is a uh, uh, Lutheran, I guess, uh, historian who, uh, current one who, who's done a lot of work on Althaus, basically says that Althaus's ties to Nazism were actually complex and dynamic and not really simplistic and static. Um, for one, Althaus opposed Nazi propaganda in regard to their wish uh, to unionize churches. Uh, basically, Nazi Germany wanted to create a united Protestant front. And it was, of course, the uh, Deutschen Christian, the uh, German Christian church. That was their kind of their vision of, of making 
kind of making a church in their own image. Althaus was opposed to that. Althaus is also on record um, criticizing what he saw as messianic tendencies in Nazi ideology, uh, basically meaning Hitler equals Messiah. <laughs> um, and he's on his record as well as criticizing the anti-Judaism of Nazism in one respect. This does not, though, absolve Althaus of otherwise very arguably anti-Semitic attitudes that uh, we could definitely say he generally had. Um, he did not believe that Germany was a replacement of Israel either. Uh, he was not a, he did not, he was not a supersessionist, at least of that sort. Um, and he was, uh, he was very critical of the Nazi regime as, uh, as it began to do what he thought, he, he saw as an improper blending of the two kingdoms, which we'll get into uh, in a second, but for a moment, I'd, I'd like to see if James and Charlie have any anything about Althaus that from your studies or readings or any kind of prior knowledge you wanted to bring before I go a little farther about Paul Althaus. I'd only heard um, of Althaus was actually, um, well, you go first, James. I, I was just saying, I, I have not really, I, I've only ever heard the name. I don't really know anything about him. You're going to know Althaus everything about him by the time first of guys I read in college, actually. Um, yeah. when, uh, when I was a freshman in college, I was at Concordia Seward, and uh, we had to take this introductory theology course called Faith and Life, and it was kind of an intro to Lutheran theology, and uh, so we read um, a biography of Martin Luther, Roland Baton's Here I Stand, and we read Ethics by Bonhoeffer, and we read um, The Ethics of Martin Luther by Paul Althaus. And yeah. so that was one of the first uh, pieces of academic Lutheran theology that I ever read. And um, I absolutely loved it. And uh, I read it again just a couple of years ago uh, for a PhD class. And the thing that I love about it is that it is academic theology that is just so um, straightforward mm -hmm. and um, it's unadorned by, you know, all of the, you know, jargon that a lot of other Lutheran theology was encumbered by at the, during the exact same period. Um, I think Althaus was just a, a very, very good communicator. Um, and I mean, this isn't to say that he didn't have faults, but uh, he's not a guy that you have to, you don't have to read the page five times to get a general idea of what he's saying. Right. Um, I mean, anybody, any one of our parishioners could read Althouse and understand him. Um, right. it, it's, it's really that straightforward right. and, and it's good. I mean, mm -hmm. um, the, the book that I'm talking about, Ethics of Martin Luther, it's almost uh, unambiguously good. He does get into a little bit of weird stuff toward the end, but um, it really is a delightful read. It really is. And I, I like what you said, Charlie. He's, he's very straightforward. Um, any lay person could read him, not to talk down on, <laughs> on parishioners and lay people, but yes, I mean, like literally and anyone who's never read a piece of theology be before, could, could just open this and get really good 
brilliant theological interpretation and fully comprehend it. Um, I mean, it's, it'd be great. It's great for undergrad courses in that sense. Um, but he's straightforward. I think Althaus is a brilliant interpreter. Um, and he was kind of the standard setter when it came to Luther, uh, the, uh, Luther scholarship. So people who study the life and thought of Luther still look to Althaus, um, who's not, is getting less and less recent as time goes on, but they still look to him. Um, but so, so um, Althaus uh, was actually kind of back to the whole Nazi thing. The reason why he's controversial is because he um, gave support for Hitler um, mainly early on. Um, now, I did mention all the, those were all the issues he took with Nazism that he actually did um, express, uh, but he also, you know, was, remained quiet and, and complicit in many ways, too. Um, he was placed under censorship by the Nazis, um, and he, he, but he basically, he held the stance, though, that really Nazi Germany should be criticized insofar as they step over their bounds of mingling into church affairs. But as, as long as they stick to their state affairs, it's pretty much a-okay in Althaus's mind. Um, in that way, that's where Althaus's complicity in the greatest human atrocity of the 20th century comes in. Um, and a piece of that is that Althaus wrote with some other theologians, and my butcher the German, he, he wrote a writing called Ansbacher Reichschlag, Rachschlag, and this was the Lutheran alternative. This was in the early 30s. Him and some, some theologians came in together and they wrote this statement. This was a Lutheran alternative to Barth's, uh, the Barman de Declaration, which was a, um, of course, as you know, but, but for our listeners, of course, are probably familiar with it too, but, you know, where some Protestant theologians in Germany came together in the early 30s to, um, to voice their dissent against Hitler um, and the Nazi regime. But Althaus, um, him and some theologians created an alternative, not because the motivation was not that they didn't like Barth and them dissenting against Hitler. Um, the main motivation was that they felt uh, Althaus um, felt that uh, Bart had expressed a Christomonism in it, which is basically this idea that um, Christ, because Christ is the is the final revelation and the fulfillment of the old, that that really all revelation is through Christ, and this kind of and this definitely collapses the traditional Reformation understanding of revelation, which says that, yes, Christ is the end all be all, but um, there is something called natural revelation, natural theology, where people can know that there is a God. They might not know God, but they, they can know. Um, and this goes back to Romans, right? That, that the law is written on our heart. We, we know good from bad written on our hearts, natural law. And we did, a, there was an episode for our listeners on this podcast about natural law. Um, I won't go too much into it, but, but basically they, they felt that they, they objected to Bart's state, the Barman Declaration on some theological grounds. Um, and so uh, one thing, there's, there's kind of two things I wanted to talk about with Althaus. One is um, the, when it came to two, the theology of the two kingdoms, which is, of course, the theology that uh, Luther kind of refined, I would say it goes back to St. Augustine with the city of God, but Luther kind of refined it 
and the reformers developed it as well, Calvin especially. Well, mainly just Calvin. Not, I can't I can't speak for Zwingli, but basically that there's that uh, God rules through the left hand and the right hand. Um, there is the, uh, the the kingdom of God, and then there's the kingdom of basically like earthly governance, and they both serve a purpose. Um, uh, basically, this this teaching has be this Lutheran teaching, even though I'd argue it's very Augustinian too gets both misunderstood and misappropriated. Um, and the thing is like Ernst Trelch, who is a 19th century uh, liberal theologian held that because of the two kingdoms teaching that Luther, uh, Luther held, that Luther was a quietist when it came to social ethics, that um, he didn't, he wasn't concerned so much in the promotion of societal well-being or pursuance of social justice, et cetera, because Luther promoted religion as sort of an inner sanctum of the individual in, in your religious pious life. But And this was a misread of Luther, which we'll get to, um, but that's how Charles read it. And then Bart kind of didn't make it any better because this was Bart's criticism of Lutheranism as well. And he believed that, that their distinction of natural and revealed theology and the Lutheran distinction of law and gospel, but which is also Calvinist distinctions, <laughs> but he ignored that, um, that this basically uh, gave a theological justification for the Nazi regime, because if, um, if the earthly ruler can rule in their own respective realm in such a way that is totally disconnected from kingdom of God ethics, then he said that's, you know, that can lead the way to to uh, corrupt earthly rulers. So, um, but Althaus was actually part of, um, after World War II, of course, a lot of Lutheran scholars revisited this teaching of two kingdoms. And Althaus was interesting because, because he was a Luther scholar, um, there was a wave of Lutheran scholars after World War II that revisited this teaching and they actually went back to Luther they went back to the actual historical Luther and Luther's writings, especially to the Genesis commentaries. And they saw that actually this two kingdoms theology, it's, it's not like these are, these are both they're Luther speaking kind of to two, what Paul would call eons or two eschatological uh, kingdoms. It's a uh, God rules cosmically through both kingdoms and that, um, that these two kingdoms are not just merely um, that they're eschatological, but they're not, I guess, um, oh, what's the word? They're not, uh, there's a dialectic, there's a kind of a dynamic relationship between the, between the two and a dialectical understanding of the two, um, rather than like a two, a two realm dualism, which some could misinterpret it as. And, even though this post-World War II wave of Luther scholars saw this, Althaus was already seeing this as early as I believe the 30s. And so it's interesting. I like to see that um, in Althaus can kind of continued in that direction. And I like to see, see it as maybe that was his way of making penance for his complicity in the, by, by, by saying, no, you can get a social ethics out of Luther. And of course, Charlie was just talking about the ethics of Martin Luther uh, the book he read, um, which is a very good read, and it does speak a lot to 
uh, a Christian's um, moral duties in this world. So um, I have like one more segment, but I'm pause there. See if you all have anything to say. <laughs> I told you I took a lot of notes. I feel like I'm like hogging all the time here, but I'm almost through it. <laughs> I would I would say one thing. I would say that um, <clears throat> it seems to me like Bart's take on Luther and Lutheranism is actually pretty pretty clearly Calvinist because Calvin does the the law gospel thing, but law always finishes up in effect. Okay. So when uh, when you're reading through the Institutes, <clears throat> you get you get the the uses of the law for for Calvin, Luther or Lutheranism's third use is Calvin's first use mm-hmm. in effect. Um, that's the primary use for him. Um, so because of that, because the law is guide and that's primary to his view of the law, then, you know, the second and third use for him or the first and second use for Luther would be, um, secondary and tertiary in effect. So it goes law gospel. And then the law for, for the regenerate, uh, the law is always going to be, um, in place and uh, there for teaching and reproval and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it does end up being a law sandwich in effect, um, law gospel law, which ends up being also a very reformed style of preaching um, mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Touch, uh, touch the end of the sermon up with some uh, apply this to your life type stuff. I call it homework. <laughs> homework. <laughs> Here's the homework part of the sermon. Right. Yeah. Um, well, and maybe, so my last part, I was going to kind of um, bring in an interesting debate he had with Boltmann. Um, this is not, this is kind of an overlooked part of Althaus. A lot of people focus on his debate with Bart, but he had a really interesting debate with Boltmann that lasted decades. Um, so and it's, you kind of have to understand his by a biography a little bit, Althaus's biography, because he's he's being trained, he, he's being schooled in kind of the, I guess, the earlier part of the 20th century. And some people he studies under are Carl Hole. So this is where we kind of get Paul Althaus, the Luther scholar, which we was, he was primarily known for. Carl Hole was, um, wasn't perfect, but he did rescue Luther scholarship from the very bad, I wouldn't even call it scholarship, but very bad takes on him in the 18th, 19th century. Um, he also, uh, Althaus also studied New Testament under Adolf Schlatter, um, who is, uh, you can see the influence. Schlatter was a kind of, I guess you'd call him a conservative theologian. I mean, for his day in the 19th century, he did not, uh, he did not partake in any of the, uh, anything historical critical. He didn't partake in anything history of religion school. Um, he, he read, uh, he would harmonize a lot of passages, <laughs> the new Testament that Bible scholars would find like problematic to harmonize. And he, ba- they basically saw his, his critics saw him as imposing theology onto doing eisegesis basically. And so, um, but all, but from a like confessional, I guess, Lutheran standpoint, it would, it would have been a conservative Protestant standpoint at the least. And so Althaus is trained under him, Althaus, um, avoided taking biblical studies courses from people with a history of religions uh, approach. Um, but he, 
was influenced. I don't know if he studied under Kaler because he, I don't remember what school Kaler was at. Um, but Martin Kaler is important. He's not as well known as perhaps Albert Schweitzer is, but Kaler and Schweitzer are both people who basically um, exposed the uh, dubiousness of the 19th century quest for the historical Jesus, kind of the, uh, the uh, idea that, uh, or efforts that scholars and so-called scholars had that they could somehow uncover a Jesus behind the scenes, behind the gospels, one who was more authentic and historically true than what we find in the gospels. And Kaler said, look, I mean, first of all, you can't, and similar to Schweitzer, he said, you can't do that. Similarly to Schweitzer, he said, all these people that are doing that are really just kind of painting Jesus in their own image because they all seem to come up with a Jesus that resembles them. Um, and they also, Kaler and Schweitzer both, of course, um, actually, this is, this is more Kaler than Schweitzer. Kaler says that what we have are New Testament documents, which are also read by the church and as canonical texts, and that the, the Christ of of the church is all we can know it's all we need to know it's who we should know and so um it's interesting althaus is influenced by this Pultmann is influenced by this in very different ways and they get into a debate about it um so uh so basically um althaus is a historian who's really interested and very concerned with historical matters. And so um, he's basically, um, he gets into this decades long debate with Rudolf Boltmann, um, very collegial, very friendly. Um, there's a book that I'll put it in the show notes from Moyer Seebeck. It's um, a collection of letters in German, uh, translated some of them with the help of Google. Um, <laughs> but I've, I've read through some of these and wrote a brief paper on it, but, um, it's, uh, they basically get into argument over like historical matters. Um, Boltmann, of course, had the famous existentialist interpretation of, um, of the Bible. And by that, of course, he, he considered, he, he did not see a lot of the things in the gospel narratives as historical or any, as being tied to historical concrete events. Uh, but he said that's not the point. Beaumont would say the point is to um, is to is to see how the text speaks to you uh, today, what the meaning under it is uh, existentially for us. Um, and of course, there's a little bit of truth to that because every preacher does some existentializing when they're you know bringing a message to 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 a present circumstance, of course. But Beaumont uh, said this in a way that uh, would dismiss a lot of um, a lot of things that the narrative presents as historical. Of course, you guys, of course, know what is kind of maybe the main event that the narratives present uh, that uh, if we deem it non-historical would become very problematic for Christian belief. Uh, the resurrection? Yes. <laughs> so that's Althaus and Boltmann's main uh, issue. Um, uh, Althaus basically says that, um, well, basically he sees that there was no method to be found in Rudolf Boltmann that ultimately determines 
which biblical contents were mythological, which ones were not. Um, Altaus raises the question that if, if Beaumont just sees only an ancient wonder world in the language of the New Testament, like where does he draw the line? And importantly, for all this importance that Beaumont places on God's decisive action in Christ, which is the resurrection, if that is not tied to a concrete event, as the biblical narrative presents it to be, then something um, as something that indicated to have taken place in space and time, he says, uh, how can Boltman place such an importance on it if it's not tied to a concrete event? Um, he basically felt Boltman was unclear and, and uh, ambiguous when it came to his treatment of the Easter event, ultimately. And uh, so uh, it's, it's just interesting. Uh, in September of 1940, Althaus wrote a letter to Boltman that was critical of how Boltman um, not only was critical of how Boltman only placed emphasis that the resurrection's truth is to be found in the visions people had of the risen Lord, but not necessarily in the historicity of a concrete event. Althaus saw Boltman as merely suggesting that these were psychogenic visions and this is all that is needed for the confirmation of an existential faith of self-understanding and um, Althaus called this a desperate dualism of history and belief and this dualism that Althaus sees in Boltmann basically summarizes his view of Boltmann's charismatic theology that sounded like I just read from notes it's because I did so um yeah that's um that is all I have for Althaus, but there's this, I know there's kind of a lot, but there's just so much that I appreciate about, um, that I find interesting about, because it's like he came into contact with all the major people that are household names, if you read theology, like Boltmann and Bart. Uh, Bruner a little bit too. I have a book on uh, some debates he had with Bruner and Bart together, probably over the natural theology. I haven't even opened it, but um, but yeah, interesting guy. Um, the Nazi thing is problematic as hell, but you know, he, he was a chaplain in World War One, and he was stationed at a hospital where um, what in what is now present day Poland, it was Germany then. And that is where he saw really the plight of a lot of German, I think not only military, but civilians um, during the war. And the humiliation Germany uh, felt, I mean, is kind of the sociological, psychological explanation for why so many people did like see the rise of Hitler and the stability that was finally in the country as like a, and they welcomed it, right? So, uh, you know, Althaus was, was, was in that time. Um, all right, I'm done. <laughs> so. I've got one comment. Um, yeah. Back to Lutheran social ethics. So one thing that I've heard <clears throat> Um, it was on a, in a class that I took on um, Calvin's Institutes. <clears throat> One of the things that the professor said was, in effect, the reason why a social ethic is less discernible in Luther than in a Calvin or, um, you know, other, other later reformers is because Luther was a first generation reformer and he was dealing with things of first importance. Right. So, when Luther was speaking, he's speaking about justification by faith. He's speaking about how one is uh, made right with God. Social ethics are good and important to talk about, but they are of secondary importance. Mm -hmm. um, 
to, to everything else. So of course, Luther is going to talk about some of those things. Um, and of course it'll, I'm sure he'll get into those kind of things when he talks about the two kingdoms and the two kinds of righteousness and whatnot. But Luther's primary concern was making sure people understood what was most important. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I remember one of my, one of the things I mentioned, I think in the conversation when we talked about Luther in the first symposium episode was that Luther says, I preach justification by faith every Sunday because every week my people forget. Mm -hmm. That's, that's where he was. Um, it's where I want to be too, but, but that's right. a different story. I forget, you know? Right. Um, yeah, I, uh, and it's funny, Luther, the way Luther did theology, I guess, was, um, I guess you could, there could be a good argument that he's more of a practical theologian than Calvin and Calvin's more theoretical just because, I mean, Luther, what he was a, he, he held a doctorate, but it was, it was an Old Testament. So it's not like he, he was not in the practice, even though he wrote catechisms, yes, but he was not in the practice of, and yes, he wrote tons of works, yes, but he was not in the practice of being like what we would today called a systematic theologian and he kind of addressed issues as they came up and so there was just a lot of like um he addressed like practical implications of a lot of things and he addressed societal things um you know and things just kind of naturally rolled out of you know um when he for something he would start on and he would get to ethics um, well, and Luther never felt the need really to write a systematic theology because he was writing <laughs> responses to what was going on. Plus, in 1521, he wholeheartedly endorsed Philip Melanchthon's Loki Communes, which was in and of itself a smaller systematic theology. Um, right. So Luther, Luther was primarily an occasional theologian. I occasional mean, theologian. Most of his pure academic work was in exegesis. So, I mean, we do have commentaries on a lot of books um i mean lectures on genesis is probably 4000 pages by yeah. itself but um the uh but mostly he you know he was a guy that um you know something would be going on that was of theological import and they would say dr luther can you can you address this thing and so he, he did and so um it's not that it. Um, it's not that his uh, approach wasn't, you know, consistent or even systematic. It's just that um, you can't find, you know, here's his locus on creation, and here's his locus on this, and here's his locus on that. Um, it's all. It 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 permeates everything that he did. Um, mm -hmm. One of my uh, one of my friends likes to say that for Luther, the most important um, thing in theology, the article upon which the church stands or falls, is whatever he was thinking about five minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, the occasional theologian. Um, who would like to go next uh, of you, you both? Well, uh, my guy kind of built on what we were just talking about a little bit. Um, okay. So go ahead with your maybe guy. that would make sense. Okay. So um, my, uh, my theologian today is uh, Johann Gerhard. Um, Gerhard was a, I think you would call him a third generation Lutheran theologian. He was 
born in uh, 1582. Um, usually you call the second uh, generation of Lutheran theologians, those that were working in the period right after Luther died in 1546. Gerhard uh, was born right after uh, the Lutheran confessions kind of came to their final form, uh, which was in 1580. He was born two years later. And uh, he, uh, very early in his life, was influenced by an important Lutheran theologian named Johann Arndt. And uh, Arndt is kind of a mixed figure in Lutheranism. Many of him, many, many of us consider him to be kind of the grandfather of pietism uh, because of the influence that he later had on uh, Philip Jakob Spener. Um, but uh, he also was a huge influence on Gerhard. And Gerhard, um, more than anything else, what he was is a systematizer of Lutheran theology. So. He's the guy who um, would read all that Luther wrote, all that the other early Lutheran theologians wrote, and then he would organize it um, in uh, kind of a collection of texts or at least quotations from texts, which addressed all sorts of different topics. He also um, interacted with um, the Roman Catholic opponents of Lutheranism rather significantly. Um, oh gosh, one of them is, uh, is um, my mind just uh, went to a blank on him, but, but there was a, uh, one of the primary uh, theologians of the Council of Trent had written extensively against Lutheran doctrine. And if you read through Gerhard's systematic works, um, he's quoting this guy probably on every other page, and he'll say, you know, this guy says this, here's the, here's the Lutheran response. Um, and uh, so his, uh, Gerhard's ma major work is called The Commonplaces. I can't remember exactly how many volumes it is, but it's more than 20. Um, and uh, it covers every... Um, Every topic in theology. Um, I'm, I'm looking here to see if I can see exactly how many volumes it is. I cannot find it. But uh, it is, uh, right now it's being translated into English. You can get a, eight or nine of the volumes uh, from Concordia Publishing House. And uh, I find myself going back to them time and time and time again. I don't have all of them. I think I have four or five of them. I have those that are in the areas that I'm most interested in, like the theology of scripture and hermeneutics and resurrection and last judgment and heaven and hell and uh, God and the Trinity. I think those are the volumes I have. Um, but the, the wonderful thing about it is what Gerhard seeks to do is to be faithful to the 16th century Lutheran tradition and to simply organize it in a way so that you can say, you know, here's this topic, here's this topic, here's this topic. Um, <clears throat> I think um, his model is probably uh, Summa Theologica by Aquinas. Um, he's considered to be the father of Lutheran scholasticism. 
which gets him a lot of criticism from some quarters uh, because uh, um, in modern Lutheranism, there's kind of a kind of a division over whether or not scholasticism is good. And um, I, I, I'm probably, um, my needle sways a little bit toward the scholastic side, but I'm not, a, I'm not a whole hogger on either side. The criticism of scholasticism is that it may oversimplify things or um, it may, um, you know, make things seem a little bit more clear than they actually are. And occasionally, I think those are legitimate criticisms of the Lutheran scholastic tradition, but 90% um, of the time, um, I find that what it does is it just provides clarity on issues that maybe, you know, weren't addressed as deeply by the Lutherans that came before, mm -hmm. or maybe they would be addressed, you know, here and there, and somebody had to begin to do the work uh, to bring all of those disparate things together and describe them in a clear way. And uh, Gerhard was the very first one to do that. And uh, basically every Lutheran theologian that, that followed him for the next, oh, close to 200 years, probably going all the way up to, you know, the period when, when Kant became or came on the scene. Um, that's called the period of Lutheran orthodoxy. Everybody yeah. who came after Gerhard had to deal with Gerhard. He was kind of the, he was a touchstone for, for everything that went after. And I do have a few uh, minor, minor quibbles with some of his theological positions, but um, the reason I love him is that he is such a rich, treasure trove of everything that you could possibly want to find about Lutheran theology. And he took seriously, you know, those that were that were attacking Lutheran theology and he dealt with their arguments head on. He didn't he didn't try to ignore them. He didn't try to, you know, duck his way out of it. He just went point by point. Here's what they say. Here's why I think they're wrong. Um, here's my evidence. Um, here's how I read the scriptures on this point. Um, Did you take you, the... Uh, you never had to guess what Gerhard was thinking because he, he told you. <laughs> Did you take the Protestant scholasticism class with Jack Hillcrease? No, I, I haven't. Um, I, I, I think I would enjoy it. Um, I'm hoping that it, that it fits yeah. into my schedule at some point. Um, yeah. Um, but, well, he's been on the show and talked about it on this podcast, but I mean, he's, of course, he, you know, he's written a lot on that, but um, on the Protestant classic era and how it's, you know, we can you, kind of the argument with scholars like Richard Muller that we can appreciate that as a, for what you said, kind of a, a time that uh, theology, theological positions needed to be clarified because it's a generation or two after the Reformation, they're getting there's there the Protestants are feeling heat from um, Catholic scholasticism, but also uh, you saw it happen in both the Lutheran and the Reformed worlds. They each had their own scholasticisms because they had to clarify 
um, really some of the Christological differences between the Lutheran and the Reformed. Um, and so it was, it was a, I think it's pretty interesting. I, I having to read a lot of just those primary works, that was a struggle because, um, yeah, I mean, it's like you said, some of the critique of Protestant classicism is that it, it's tries to be too clear in of things that are perhaps need to be respected as divine mysteries or however you want to say that. But also it's just mind numbing to read a lot of that stuff. I mean, it's not like, um, yeah, I mean, after a while, it's just, it's just, you get, it can become really tiresome um, just because it's so systematic and it's so filled with categorical language. Uh, a lot of it time, you know, from a time period that, you know, it's not the vernacular we have now. So yeah, it's a challenge to read, but it is a fascinating time period. And I, and I do like the arguments that people like Jack Hillcrease and Richard Muller have, which say that, you know, it wasn't so much Luther would not have condemned or he would not have had much of an issue with Protestant scholasticism hundred years later because it 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 only used a method from Aquinas in the medievals. It didn't, it was not identical in content, I guess. So it was kind of the more yeah, a lot the better than I can. <laughs> one of the criticisms that people levy against Gerhard is that he married Lutheran theology with Aristotle. Um, and right. <clears throat> well, maybe, maybe a tiny bit. I mean, he, he uses the, you know, he uses the language, you know, of the different types of causes. And because this was just the way that, that theologians talked in those days. Um, right. he's, he, he doesn't necessarily say one has to accept these philosophical presuppositions in order to correctly do theology, but um, he's talking to people who use these philosophical presuppositions, and so he plays the same game. Um, I, I mean, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pragmatic issue for him, I think, rather than, you know, the, what it was with Aquinas, who saw Aristotle as the philosopher, all, right. all caps letters. Right. Um, I don't think I don't think you could say that of Gerhard, mm -hmm. um, but that's one of the criticisms. But I mean, um, and and then I mean uh, the other thing is, yeah, he, he rambles on sometimes. It seems like he's never going to get to the next topic. But that's because he he is attempting to be comprehensive. Mm -hmm. He is attempting to address all of the issues that are in play at the time, and not leave any of them out. Right. And so that will sometimes make a section seem a lot longer than it needs to be, but it is exactly as long as it needs to be for him to do what he actually is trying to do. Right. Uh, and, and if he cut anything out, then it, it really would uh, diminish his value, especially as kind of a historical snapshot of of what's what's going on in the theological scene at the time right probably um, what you were just saying by the way reminded me of something in the dedicatory letter in the in at the beginning of uh, melanchthon's loki communas he says but most important in this book the principal topics of christian teaching are pointed out so that youth may arrive at a twofold understanding one what must chiefly 
what one must chiefly look for in scripture, two, how corrupt are all the theological hallucinations of those who have offered us the subtleties of Aristotle instead of the teachings of Christ. Right. That was Melanchthon? Yeah. That's that Melanchthon Bootser book from uh, Wilhelm, is it Polk? Polk? Polk. Yep. I got that five feet from me too. That's a good, um, that's a good edition of those writings. Um, uh, yeah, I, I was going to say, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, I think I'd rather read Luther's works over the Lutheran scholastics, but I did do a paper on Johann Gerhard because he was of interest to me when I was in seminary. I'm probably the only Episcopal seminarian who's ever written a paper in seminary on Johann Gerhard. <laughs> but at the, I don't remember, it was on some one of those CPH books that Robert Preuss, um, or maybe it was Jack Preuss translated, one of the Preusses. And uh, I think it was on like the a theology of the word. He he further like expounded upon it. It was, it was kind of Luther, but it was definitely a, a newer, it was more, innov it was definitely innovative. Like the, the way he spoke of the word in its, I think in its formal sense and its material sense, you're probably familiar with this, Charlie, the scholastics kind of use this in their understanding of scripture and uh, inspiration, right? I think we lost him. Did you hear, did you get my last, uh, we might have to, sometimes if you turn your camera off too, not that we don't want to see his face, but um, so yeah, I think we lost him. Um, but if he comes back, he comes back. Um, why don't James, why don't we have you go ahead? If he's able to come in, if you can hear me. Oh, hey, Charlie, can you hear me? I, I was able to hear you the whole time. You slowed down for a little bit, but uh, okay. well, do I'm you in one speak? of my uh, church studies right now, and this is the least stable internet connection that I have. Um, um, it's just a matter of necessity that I be here today. Do you want to speak, before we have James go, do you want to speak real quick on Gerhard's understanding of scriptural inspiration? Um. Well, sure. Um, he he took the the pretty standard view that um, that was held um, before him um, by uh, Luther and the other reformers that uh, the scriptures are the inspired and inerrant word of God. Um, now, inerrancy isn't something that was uh, in the vocabulary then, but Gerhard consistently talks about them being absolutely true and pure and unadulterated. Um, and I mean, he says everything except um, inerrant. Um, he gives all that content. One place where I quibble with him a little bit is on something that we've talked about before. And that is that um, he takes a little bit different view on canon than Luther and Chemnitz did. Okay. I talked about you know, the Lutheran view of the open canon where we have these seven books that we don't say dogmatically that they are or are not um, scripture. Um, Gerhard took the view, which probably is the most common view among Lutherans today, um, which is that he believed that those seven books were absolutely canonical um, but that when we read them, we have to read them in light 
of the other 20 books of the New Testament. Um, and so his terminology was that in the New Testament, you had canon of the first order and canon of the second order. And so he called the Antilogomena uh, canon of the second order um, rather than calling them Antilogomena. Uh, okay. And uh, I... I, I think I think that's saying a wee bit too much. So I, that would be one of my quibbles with him. Okay. Yeah. Well, I know that's a that's a uh, topic you're really interested in too. So, um, James, who's your so, guy? I know who your guy is, but I'm not going to spoil it. I want to let you say this. <laughs> so. Um, I'm going to talk about probably the most wide-reaching Anglican theologian of the 20th century, which is C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis, or Clive Staples Lewis, or as his friends know him, Jack, which I've never figured that one out. But Yeah, me neither. Um, <laughs> he was born in Belfast in 1898 and died on the exact same day as John F. Kennedy and Aldous, Aldous Huxley, November 22nd, 1963. He was a lecturer at Oxford for almost 30 years and then uh, went over to Cambridge for the remainder of his life from 54 to 1963. He was, uh, like I said, born in Ireland, baptized in the Church of Ireland, which is an Anglican, uh, an Anglican church in Ireland. Um, but left the church at a pretty early age, um, and uh, he went to war in World War I um, and was wounded. Um, actually, uh, everything I've seen has indicated that he was wounded by friendly fire. Um, uh, a British shell didn't make it quite as far as it was supposed to, um, but uh, he ended up being discharged or being uh, sent home for some reason, then eventually was able to get out um, and was a pretty angry atheist in much of his younger life. Um, there's also a real question as to whether or not um, a fellow uh, soldier, who, uh, a fellow soldier asked him to take care of his mother. And there's a real question as to whether or not at this point in his life, he actually had a, uh, an illicit relationship with this woman. Um, some people have said yes, others have said no. It's actually somewhat hotly debated in um, Lewis biographies. Um, but Lewis uh, eventually graduated from Oxford and uh, became a lecturer, especially in Arthurian legend. Um, he was very interested in medieval legend. Um, if you read some of his uh, novels, like obviously the biggest example of mythology in his novels is, of course, Till We Have Faces, which is a modern retelling of um, the Greek myth of, um, uh, shoot, I, I forgot, I'll, I, I'll remember like at the end of the episode who it is. I, I don't know what it is either. I don't know if Charlie knows, but I don't know. Um, I'll have to, I'll have to, I'll tell you and you can put a show. I reread it three months ago and I can't remember i, I reread it like <laughs> six months ago and i can't remember either it's uh anyways uh drew you can put a show note in but 
But anyway, so um, over time, Lewis uh, began friendships with some pretty important people uh, who we now know of as the Inklings. Um, one of the biggest influences on him becoming a Christian again, in effect, was J.R.R. Tolkien of Lord of the Rings fame. Tolkien was an adamant. Cupid and C.K. What's that? Cupid and C.K. There you go. Cupid and, and Suke. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Well done, Charlie. Um, so uh, Tolkien was very influential in um, bringing Lewis back to the fate. Um, Tolkien was also pretty pissed when, uh, when, when he became an Anglican and not a Roman Catholic. Um, Tolkien was very pre-Vatican II Latin Rite Catholic. When they changed the liturgy from uh, Latin to English, he would always do the responses in Latin as a defiance. Um, so Tolkien was was very keen on uh, on Roman Catholicism, and Lewis he was, he was a trad. He was a rad trad. Yes, uh, before it was cool. So he's a hipster too. Um, so uh, Lewis came back through arguments that he had with Tolkien, who he had great respect for, but also through two other pretty important influences. George MacDonald, who was a Church of Scotland pastor. Church of Scotland is a Presbyterian denomination in Scotland that uh, is deeply influenced by the Scottish Calvinist John Knox. George MacDonald was also um, famously a universalist. And so Lewis, one of the main things that I quibble with him about is his aspirational universalism, or um, he really hopes that everybody is saved. Uh, he even talks about, and I think it's in The Great Divorce, that um, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. It's either there or it's in mere Christianity. I'm not 100% sure. But... Um, I quibble with him about yeah, that. He plays with it in Great Divorce and in um, Last Battle. Yeah, yeah. Well, but but in the Last Battle, though, uh, spoiler alert: that's you know sixty years in the making. Um, Susan and uh, Susan doesn't get to uh, New Narnia in effect because uh, she apostatized. Um, so he he. He plays with it, but I don't know. That's why I call it aspirational universalism. I don't think he can ever quite get there. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. It's like my Eastern Orthodox friends who say, um, they say it is, it is pious to hope everyone, or no, he, they, they say it's pious to hope hell is empty and it's heresy to say that it is. <laughs> um, or, or you can say- I think say, they're wrong, you, but, but I think Lewis would agree. Right. You, you can say that um, that you can hope for it, but it's not a reasonable hope. Um, I was going to say, I'm finding myself uh, like Lewis and maybe those, your Eastern Orthodox friends, Charlie. I mean, I, I hope, I do, I truly hope that hell is empty. Um, I don't think but it's I believe to hope something that the scriptures say is false. But I think Jesus on the cross... Oh, we're having a debate now. I think Jesus on the cross, his death was for the whole world, right? Unlimited atonement. Well, well I feel absolutely, like... Absolutely, but, um, but the New Testament is clear that hell is not empty. Right. Um, doesn't mean you can't hope that it... Right. It's, so I don't think it's pious to hope for something that is, um, is, is said by God to be false. Well, I would... 
I was. This is a this is a huge rabbit hole. We should. It is a huge not interrupt, James. I'm sorry, James. Go ahead. That's fine. No, this is. uh, I mean, look. If we can't if we can't have uh, good disagreement about important things, um, then uh, we're kidding ourselves, and folks who are listening aren't really getting anything out of it. If if this is sure uh, fake, so. Well, disclaimer: I think universalism is garbage theology. Good. So that's not what I was saying. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think you're I think you're absolutely right. Um and I think well, I shouldn't say Lewis... it's there have been good arguments from a from a rational standpoint for it, but it's just they're not true. Yes. And opinion. I think Luther or I not Luther, I think Lewis would probably arrive in the same place. Right. Um, so he, he, he wore many hats. Um, he was an apologist. So mere Christianity is a a primary work of apologetics, um, where he is laying out what is basic, uh, what is, um, mere about Christianity in effect. And so he starts off, um, with moral law and then builds from there and what's amazing about this is that he he did these as a series of radio episodes during the bombing of Britain in World War II, and they were eventually compiled into Mere Christianity. Um, I, 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 I can't even imagine that. I mean, I, I think that's really amazing. Um, uh, but so he, he wrote works of theology and apologetics. Um, some of his... Uh, blending of of fiction with theology uh some examples of that of course are um the screw tape letters is probably the most obvious where he writes letters from a senior demon to that senior demon's nephew who is a junior tempter um and when i was struggling in my faith after college um a good friend of mine Father Tom Warren, who is now the rector of St. Mary's in Kinston. Um, at the time, he was the assistant rector, and we were doing uh, a Lenten book series, or maybe it's Advent. I don't remember which one, but it was one of those two on the screw tape letters. And when I read that and read Lewis talking about the law of undulation, about how, in effect, not everything is always going to be perfect in the Christian life, it like it got me right in the heart. It was, a, it was right at the right time. And I've read it probably two or three times since then, but it's one of my favorite books of all time. Strong recommendation. Have you read, um, have you read um, A Grief Observed? Yes, I have. That was also one of my favorites. Um, and I've read I The Problem of Pain. Best thing he ever wrote. Yeah. Um, a Grief Observed is what he wrote after um, his wife, Joy Davidman, died. Um, and she, um, the, the two of them had, had cultivated a friendship, um, and, and eventually got married. Um, and his writing of a grief observed was a catharsis for him. It was an attempt to try and work through his grief. And that's why he calls it a grief observed, but he arrives at such an amazing and and, and empowered place, I think in a good way. Um, and the problem of pain is is um, is a great work too. It's it's a work of theodicy. It's it's dealing with um, how can a, how can 
God both be just and also there is pain in the world. Um, real, real quick, last couple of things. Um, his novels are great. I absolutely love the Narnia series, but probably my favorite of his novels are the Space Trilogy. Um, I've never read those. I've always been curious about them, though. It, so there's For some reason, our- I could never make it through Paralandra. <laughs> So it's steeped in. Um, I, I want to, but I, I have. I, it's. I, it's been probably twenty or thirty years since I tried. So I, I really should give it a shot again. Hey, maybe that's a new podcast series. Oh, um, the, the talk about the space. That would be an actually a cool series. Um, yeah. Well, if Charlie uh, and I like the books, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Fair enough, but it's a, um, so especially um, that hideous strength, which is number three, is 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 full of Lewis nerding out on Arthurian legend. It's really, it's a fun read, mm-hmm. um, but they are very, very dense. So my favorite, um, my favorite C.S. Lewis book is The Four Loves. Mm-hmm. That book, now I couldn't have appreciated it as like a younger man or boy, I guess, when, you know, because he's a younger person, you do read C.S. Lewis, even though, he does write on a higher level in some things, you know, Narnia and stuff. I grew up with some C.S. Lewis, like a lot of people do or did at least. But Four Loves is something I would not have appreciated as a younger person, as an adult male. Um, and I say male because that's, that's that does play a part. I really appreciate it because the way he talks about male friendship in that uh, totally blew me away, resonated with me. On a, I think it could resonate with a lot of people. Um, the way he talks about friendship. I was going to share a quote from it, but I can do it later. Um, I pulled it up. I it's I posted it like two years ago on Facebook, and that's it's a, have at it. Search have post. At it. <laughs> What's that? Have at it. Oh, it's uh, I'll go ahead and read it. Um, so quote: um, Friendship has least commerce with our nerves. There's nothing throaty about it, nothing that quickens the pulse or turns you red and pale. It is essentially between two individuals. The moment two men are friends, they have they have in some degree drawn apart from the herd. The species biologically considered has no need for friendship. The pack or herd, the community may even dislike it or distrust it. Its leaders very often do. Headmasters and headmistresses and heads of religious communities, colonels and ship captains, you can tell the dating of this, can feel... <laughs> uneasy when close and strong friendships arise between little knots of their subjects. Friendship has not tearful smiles and keepsakes and baby talk enough to please the the sentimentalists. Friendship is not blood and guts enough to attract the primitivists. It looked thin and etoliated, that's a word I'm not used to, a sort of vegetarian substitute for the more organic loves. Friendship withdraws men from collective togetherness as surely as solitude itself could do, more dangerously for it withdraws them by twos and threes. Some forms of democratic sentiment are naturally hostile to it because it is selective, an affair of the few. To say these are my friends implies those are not. Lovers are always talking to one another about their love. Friends hardly ever talk about their friendship. Lovers are normally face to face, absorbed in each other. Friends, side by side, absorbed in some common interest. It is when two such persons discover one another, when whether the immense difficulties and fumblings, or with what would seem to us amazing and elliptical speed, they share their vision, it is then that friendship is born, unquote. 
C.S. Lewis from The Four Loves. Very cool. So awesome. You know, that reminds me of an experience I had on Friday night. I've never read that before. Um, I was at this uh, uh, event, at a fundraiser for my wife's school, and she's faculty. And so I was sitting next to her at one table, and right behind me was a good friend of mine who was sitting at the table next to his wife, who's also on the faculty. And I hadn't seen my friend in a few months. Mm -hmm. And uh, because it was loud and because we weren't facing each other, we were sitting like that for like two and a half hours. And we said maybe 12 words to each other over the course of the 12 hours. But I left the event thinking, boy, it was really nice to see Craig. <laughs> right. And, and I mean, we had barely interacted, but that's all it took. Yeah. Yeah. It's friendship is such an interesting phenomenon. And until I really read that insight, I guess, from Lewis, um, it, it really put the pieces together of, of you know, friend, why friendship, friend, how friendship works so well or it can work so well. And um, I, it, it requires work, of course, but it's, you know, it's a different kind of thing than maintaining a romantic relationship. You know, it's so. There's a there's a medieval theologian monastic who wrote about that Aelred of Riveau. He wrote a, a treatise on spiritual friendship, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd be interested in reading that, too. And Wes Hill. Um, who's a Bible scholar, just finished his time at uh, Trinity School for Ministry, is now headed out to Western Seminary, I think. He's written fairly extensively on spiritual friendship as well. Oh. So uh, I will say, last thing about Lewis, um, C.S. Lewis has definitely been uh, uh, the longest uh, theologian on my list. Uh, the longest theological friendship that I've had, in effect. Um, I, I was given mere Christianity when I was a junior in high school uh, by a, a member of the church. We used to do something where uh, a member of the church would sponsor a member of the youth, and they would send them anonymous things, um, like a guardian angel type thing, and they would send gifts, and it would be sort of a fun thing trying to guess who it is, and then you'd have this big meal at the end of the time, and they've been praying for you the whole time. And it was a really wonderful thing. Um, and this guy, um, Joe, um, gave me uh, a copy of uh, Mere Christianity. It's still on my shelf over there. And I've read it a couple of times. And, uh, and that really started my theological friendship with Lewis. Um, mm -hmm. I think that book, some people have said it's very dated. I think it's aged very well. So, you know, and as much as you I know, like that. I bet that a lot of people could say the same thing that you said about um, Lewis being the person that they've had the longest spiritual friendship with yeah. um, among theologians that they read. I, I mean, I could probably say it. I think I, I think I had a friend, or no, it was my pastor. I think my pastor gave me a copy of screw tape letters when I was a sophomore in high school. Mm. Um, that was probably the first theology I read outside of Luther's small catechism. Um, okay. So, I bet, but I bet a, 
I bet a ton of people have stories like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I think my first encounter with Lewis, I actually know this is, I still love this film version. The uh, British, not the live action, the 70s British animated Lion, the Wish, and the Wardrobe is, my mom showed it. Uh, I think she taped it off TV, showed it to my sister and I. We were kids. And uh, I remember watching that over and over and over again, just loving the story. And I, and I caught, it wasn't right away, but uh, I later, before I heard, I think, I think it was before I even heard that it was, you know, religious undertones overtones really that it's based the aslan there's the parallel of aslan's sacrifice in christ i think i started to piece it together in my own mind i yeah, i don't know maybe it's also kind of like i didn't realize hamlet and lion king were the same story till many many years later um, you know i didn't read narnia until <laughs> probably 20 years after i read screw tape letters really yeah. uh it was it's one of the most recent um, bits of Lewis that I read for the first time. I mean, I've read a lot of Lewis, but I read probably 90% of his apologetic works before I read Narnia. Yeah. Um, which is not the way it goes for most people. <laughs> most people, Narnia, if Narnia is usually the only thing people, <laughs> people get from us. And that was, that was, by the way, Tolkien's least favorite of Lewis's writings because Tolkien absolutely despised allegory and Narnia is pure allegory openly so I mean in the voyage of the dawn treader which is my favorite of those books Aslan says to um, Lucy and um, the cousin I don't remember his name offhand um, Eustace Clarence Scrub Eustace thank you yes that uh, they won't be able to, I think it was, they won't be able to come back to Narnia, but when they go back to their world, Aslan is known by another name. He says, I am known by mm -hmm. another name. It's like, ah, yes, this is awesome. Absolutely. So I the best, the best sentence I think that C.S. Lewis ever wrote, I think is on maybe page two of Voyage of the Don Treader. There was once a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub. And he almost deserved it. <laughs> That's good. good. Um, it, it's what you said a moment ago, James. It's funny that the the Catholic writer is the one who hates allegory, and the right. Protestant writer is the one that uses it. <laughs> right. But also, I don't believe Token fully because they say that warfare scenes from Lord of the Rings are parallel or allegories of his World War One trench experience token uh, you know. except i think tolkien gets to be right on that controversy tolkien says that lord of the rings is a fantasy story it's myth has nothing to do with world war one really? and I, I i think we should take him at his word for that and that, i mean lord of the rings has a lot of parallels to christianity but it's it's all um illusory a-l-l-u-s-o-r-y it's all illusion it's not it's not an allegory. Um, so, I mean, I think he's stupid to have the deep loathing for allegory that he has, but I think that uh, we can take him at his word that Lord of the Rings is illusion, not allegory, and that it has nothing to do with World War I, except for the fact that its author fought in World War I. I mean, 
you I so I mean you can't totally disconnect the man from the from the book, but right. um he says it's not an allegory of World War One, so I believe it's not an allegory of World War One. Yeah, I uh to be honest, I've never I've never gotten into Lord of the Rings really, but I did see the movie token they did a few years ago and uh I thought it was a, a good it wasn't a spectacular movie but it was it was good and uh they did though run with that whole uh idea of world war one influencing but um i wonder if the token family is mad i don't know who knows <laughs> so well guys um this is a great episode um we'll have to debate universalism next time um so i, I guess i'll be the referee <laughs> yeah, yeah james will be the referee <laughs> No, I don't, I mean, you know, but uh, what was I going to say? Oh, so we will have, I guess, yeah, one more episode because I guess Charlie's going to do two next time. We'll each do one and then um, I won't spoil anything, but our post-show conversation, we'll chat for a sec about possibilities of future series. Um, but for our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We will have Symposium 4 up uh some point after this and i uh, hope you enjoy this episode god bless and god bless you this lenten season <laughs>